Our scripture passage this morning is Matthew 28, verses 1 through 6. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said, come, see the place where he lay. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, we do feel that the world is broken, and we do feel the shadows deepen, and we do wish it, to see it all made new, which makes us so thankful for Jesus, the Lamb who is worthy and will, in fact, bring new creation. Got to pray for the many that have had pretty severe trials this week among our membership, God, and I'm thankful to hear that progress is being made and we pray for more progress and recovery and healing to be made for Gary Toppert and for Kristen Goldsmith and W.O. and Cubby Flatt and Liesel and Ethan Luckenbach and Linda Reed. We pray that you'd be with these and that they would recover well from various trials and accidents that have occurred and pray that for them and for us, as we have especially bodily trials and aches and injuries and sickness, that it would be a reminder of what we're celebrating today, that at the end of the day, this is not our ultimate body. And at the end of the day, this current world will be restored and renewed and made new, and pray that we would remind ourselves of that this morning and every morning. God, we want to pray for Resonate Church that launched last week here in Abilene, that you would be with them as they celebrate Christ, that you would be with Jordan Cosper as he preaches your gospel, that you would bring unbelievers in, that you would save and encourage your saints this morning at Resonate. And Father, I pray for many of our teachers about this time of the year, they're getting weary and, and worn and tired. Would you refresh them and would you give them perspective to see the ministry they have, that they would wield their influence well, they would use it for your glory, and that you would energize them for the next several weeks. And Father, I pray for those that will be in church this morning, all over this city who haven't been in church in a long time, that you would draw them in, that they would be encouraged. Would you help them to see how beautiful the Lord Jesus is? And as we turn to your words, would you grant us teachable hearts? Help us to believe that you know better than we do. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but your word endures forever. We pray this through Jesus the King, your Son and our Lord, who's enthroned at your right hand and the Spirit, everyone God. Amen. Well, my name is Blake. I'm one of the ministers here at Southside, and I just need you to know this morning that we're all going to die someday. The odds are incredible. 10 out of 10 die. Happy Easter. Charles Spurgeon, British pastor, says, here's the history of the grass. Sown, grown, blown, 
moan, gone. And the history of man is not much more. My goal this morning, though, is to show you that that doesn't ultimately have to be bad news. And I know that Easter's supposed to be bright and happy and sugary and flowery and pastel-y and rabbity and all the things. But really, what is Easter but the overcoming of death itself? See, if we don't feel the weight of death, we're not gonna rightly celebrate Easter. It would really actually make no sense. But we hate this sort of thing. Some of you are already uncomfortable. Why'd we come to this church? Those who know me are like, oh, here goes Blake again. We gotta feel the weight of our own death, though, for this really to mean anything, and we don't like it. Americans try to push death out of sight, out of mind, right? We've removed it from the home, which was the norm for most of human history, to the hospital, and there we fight way too long, and we have increasing advanced medical technology to do so. There's always something more to do. Did you know that Medicare spends a fourth of its money on the 5% of patients who are in their final year of life, and most of that's just the last few months? People don't even die anymore, we pass away. We don't have funerals, we have celebrations of life. We don't have cemeteries, we have memorial parks. We don't have death certificates, we have vital statistics forms. We try to evade it and avoid it at all possible. Now, the last couple years, though, COVID has brought it back on our radar in ways that have been unpleasant and uncomfortable and tragic, to be honest. Remember, there were months where it was just rolling death counts. And we've been forced to think about it, but what I want you to know is I come from the past And the ancients actually intentionally focused on death and on their own death. It was the art of dying. It was called memento mori, remember death. I have this painting in my office. I actually have the same painting twice. I want it once on this side and once on this side, so I'm always gonna catch a a glance at it. And it's called vanitas. And the point is to help us focus on our own finitude. And so it's it's got a tulip. On, on the side here, and then it's got a skull, and then it's got an hourglass. The tulip still has red leaves, but they're, they're yellow at the tips. It's on its way out. And then you have the skull in the middle, and then you have the hourglass that is running out. There's normal types of art, especially with the bubonic plague. And the picture communicates that life, the flower, It's fading, and it leads to death, the skull, and it's only a matter of time. The hourglass. I've also got an hourglass on my study, as well as a skull, a little black, you know, ceramic skull, and it's not because I'm Mormon. It's actually a a long history. It's not because I'm goth, but I want to be like those who focused and lived well. St. Francis would put a skull on the breakfast table. In fact, in many of the monastic tradition, they would often have a skull at their desk where they would write and study and pray, and it wasn't a ceramic skull. It was Brother Mark. (laughs) And it was a reminder, I'll be there soon. There was an old order of French monks. They would greet one another, and the way they would greet one another was, think of death, dear brother. Think of death, dear brother. I like that. I think that's so helpful. Because listen, life is to be lived in light of the end. And to die well, we gotta live well. Think of death, dear brother. We ought to start that at Southside. We can call it the death dap. Just 
You're going to die, bro. <laughs> Live well. Life's a mess, brother. Redeem the time. That's why oftentimes, historically, if you go to older places in the country, you look at the old church houses, what's right next door? Cemetery. The graveyard where you're, you're literally walking through your fellow deceased saints as you gather to worship God. Many Benedictine monasteries would have a cemetery right next to the chapel. And as they would have funerals, they would bury one of the monks, but then they would go ahead and dig up the next one. They just leave it. No one in there yet, but they just wanted everyone who passed by to realize somebody's next and it might be me and I need to live in light of that. That grave could be mine. And to us, that sounds horrific and dark and morbid, but again, the purpose is that we might live well. To die well, we must live well. As the psalmist would say, oh Lord, listen to this prayer, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Psalm 34, Moses in Psalm 90. So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. So friends, I don't mean to be a downer this morning, but the reality and weight of death is what makes Easter so good. It's what makes Easter such a big deal. You know, one way to think about this is to kind of zoom out and ask, what is Christianity for? Sociologists look at it and ask, just trying to be objective, looking at different religions. What's this one for? In fact, sociologist Peter Berger says this, the power of religion depends in the last resort upon the credibility of the banners it puts in the hands of men as they stand before death or more accurately, as they walk inevitably toward it. And church, I would contend that the banners that Christianity puts in the hands of its inheritance are the only hope against the despair of death. Just think about other options. The purpose of Islam at the end of the day is to live well, be good enough so that you can obtain paradise and there be met by 72 black-eyed virgins. Indicator of a man-made religion if there ever was one. Goal of Mormonism is that really good people can have their own planet one day and rule as gods. Goal of Buddhists, reincarnation. Hindus, collect enough good karma, maybe have a better life in the next one. Suitable reincarnation. Jehovah's Witnesses, you gotta be really holy. You might make that 144,000 cutoff. There's a lot of ways you can think about different purposes and even of Christianity, but one of the main purposes of Christianity is the overcoming of death, what we celebrate on Easter Sunday. John 3, 16, God so loved the world that whoever believes in him should not die, but live forever. And Easter should be our main holiday. The reality of the overcoming of death is the reason for celebrations, not peeps and pastels, as fun as those may be. You know, it's kind of interesting. In America, we make a bigger deal out of Christmas than Easter. And listen, I'm no Scrooge, and the last thing I want to do is downplay Christmas at all. But Christmas really means nothing without Easter. As St. Athanasius put it, the supreme object of his coming, speaking of Christ, was to bring about the resurrection of the body. We sort of reverse the order of the New Testament. So what is Easter? Easter is resurrection. Well, what's resurrection? 
probably bigger than we think. Let's zoom out just for a minute and consider the capital S story of the Bible, the narrative of scripture. God creates and he creates Genesis 1, a good world, no death in it. But those first humans, they chose self-rule. We know what it is. In fact, we will determine what's right and wrong. They chose self-rule rather than submit to God's rule. And what's the result? Sin. God warned that. If you do this, you will die. And sure enough, Death entered the world and has been taking names and numbers ever since. Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. And sin is an honest employer. And so death spread to all men. How will death be overcome? Resurrection. During the time of Jesus in the first century, the period that we call Second Temple Judaism, resurrection was about the restoration of Israel, the people of God on the one hand, and the newly embodied life of God's people on the other. And this is important. What they thought of resurrection was something that happened at the end of history for all God's people. So just remember, maybe you remember the story in John 11 of of Lazarus. Lazarus dies and Jesus assures her, his sister assures her, listen, he will rise again. And you remember what Martha said? I know that he's gonna rise, rise again in the resurrection on the last day. It was just the assumption. That's what all Jews thought. There would be a resurrection on the last day, the end of history, and it would be all God's people. Now, there were some Jews that denied the resurrection. We call them Sadducees. But the Bible-believing ones believed in one mass general resurrection at the end of history. So resurrection was something that came for all at the end. What they did not expect was one man to be raised from the dead in the middle of history. Easter is about King Jesus yanking God's future into the present moment. Jesus' resurrection is an invasion of the future into the here and now, the presence of the future. Jesus inaugurates the first stage of new creation. I've got a a little diagram here to help us think about how people viewed history. So the Jewish view of history was very linear. We have this age, often called this present age or this evil age, this age of fallenness. And they believed that the Messiah would come. They also believed that the, the pouring out of the spirit would happen. They also believed that's when resurrection would happen. And then the rest of eternity is the age to come. This age, coming of Messiah, spirit, resurrection, age to come. Now the Christian view of history is not quite that neat. You have this age And then notice you have the first coming of the Messiah, Jesus' first coming, lives a perfect life, dies in our place, is raised from the dead, and he inaugurates the age to come in his first coming. And now we live in that little shaded area, this time between the times, this kingdom that is already but not yet fully consummated. And when he comes again, which is what we're waiting for, he inaugurates fully the age to come, the kingdom consummated. That's why Galatians 1, 4 says Jesus came to deliver us from the present evil age. They didn't expect two comings of the Messiah. His resurrection is the beginning of the new creation. John, in the gospel according to John, shows us this in a really neat and subtle way. So John's gospel in many ways is structured around what he calls signs. Signs that Jesus is not only the Messiah, but also the son of God. And so there's seven of them, often people say seven, there's really eight. And that seventh sign in John's gospel comes in chapter 11. It's the resurrection of Lazarus. Of course, 
His was really more of a recitation, right? Wasn't a true resurrection because poor Lazarus had to die twice. But it's that seventh sign, Lazarus, raised from the dead. And seven, just like all Jewish numbers, is symbolic for something else. And seven, as most of us know, is the sign of perfection. Why? Because it took God seven days to create, seven days of creation. Seventh sign, Lazarus, raised from the dead. But then there's an eighth one. And the eighth one is Jesus's own resurrection. Eighth day, which is actually the first day of the new creation. It's John chapter 20. And then as Jesus is raised, Mary sees him and mistakes him for the gardener. Seven days, first day of the new creation. Just like in Genesis 1, you have seven days, you have Adam and the old creation tending the garden. And John, you have the first day of the new creation, the second Adam being mistaken for the gardener. In the original Greek, it says, wink, wink. Jesus is the new Adam bringing about the new creation. Easter is about the inauguration of the kingdom of Christ, the beginning of the age to come. It's what it is. So why is it a big deal? Why should it be our main holiday? Well, there's so much we could say, but I'm gonna limit myself to four points. The first is Easter is an affirmation of the material world. In the resurrection, God really is reaffirming the goodness of creation. Remember, God created the world, Genesis 1 and 2, and it was good, and he has no intention of discarding it. You know, a lot of religions downplay creation. They downplay matter. Most influentially, what we know is Gnosticism. Everything spiritual is good, physical is bad. But Jesus didn't remain a spirit. He could have, but he took on a body. Christianity is an embodied religion. We take the body seriously. It's been really interesting to see how culture has shifted and it shifts so fast today. And one of the ways it's shifted in the last decade, and I think will continue, is you could call it a lot of things. You could call it postmodernism, hard postmodernism, uh, expressive individualism, personhood theory. And there's this new view of the human person. Really, this is, this is where we're at today is what we call the doctrine of anthropology. Who are we as humans? And now the standard view of the day, it, holds to personhood theory. And the idea is that bodies and persons are separate. They're separate. Really, the bodies are expendable. Just the view of the day. It undergirds so much of the problems that we see in our culture, especially when it comes to the sexual revolution. Think about just transgenderism for a moment. Bodies don't matter. Anatomy doesn't matter. All that matters is what? The person by which they mean the feelings, the subjective feelings. Objective biology no longer matters, just however I feel. The, the mantra is that biology is tyranny. The mantra is that it doesn't matter what's between your legs, it matters what's between your ears. So we've separated body from person in our culture. Body's expendable, doesn't really matter, doesn't tell us much. Same with homosexuality. Disregards anatomy, disregards reproduction, 
just how you feel and what you desire. That's what matters. That undergirds euthanasia, it undergirds hookup culture that's rampant, especially in our secular universities that says uh, sexuality is just a physical thing. You can separate your mind. In fact, magazines like Seventeen and Cosmos is instructing our teenage girls to just be totally absent from your mind. It's just a bodily thing. We have such a higher view of the human person. Same with abortion, actually. Now that we have advanced medical technology, almost everyone agrees that the fetus is a person. We can, it's just hard to debate that anymore. That life begins at conception. It's the, it's the majority view today, unlike 30 years ago. But now the, the practice sure hasn't changed, has it? Well, what's the difference? Well, you can have, they would say, some even say up to three years, an ethicist at Harvard, but most would say until they're born, they're not a person. So yeah, it's a human it's a human from day zero all the way nine months, but it's not yet a person, therefore they are expendable. Well, could say more and more about that. Not so Christianity. We are an embodied religion. We don't separate human from a body or a person from a body. We are embodied. God has endowed us with bodies. We are a psychosomatic unity, body and soul. The material matters. But sadly, the message of Christianity has often been co-opted by Gnosticism. And sometimes we reduce the Bible just down to the spiritual. And we read the Bible story as if it goes from Genesis 3 to Revelation 20. And we skip four really crucial chapters. Genesis 1 and 2 where God creates a good world and it is very good. Then Genesis 3 becomes cursed. And then all the way to Revelation 20 where we miss 21 and 22 that speaks of a new heavens and a new earth. The Bible teaches that God's gonna do for the whole cosmos what he did for the body of Jesus. God will resurrect bodies and he will resurrect the whole world. Look at Romans chapter eight, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. The creation itself will be set free. So friends, heaven, however you envision eternity, it's not gonna be disembodied. Just like Jesus, we will be in resurrection bodies, living with the risen king on a restored physical world. Jesus in Matthew chapter 19, verse 28, calls it the new world. We're not gonna spend eternity with chubby babies, as awesome as chubby babies are, or harps. We will not fly away to some celestial shore for eternity. The line, this world's not my home, I'm just passing through, is false. This world redeems, set free, Romans 8, will be our home. The message of the Bible is creation to new creation. It starts in a garden and it ends in a city. So that's the first thing. 
Easter is a reaffirmation of the goodness of the created order. Second, Easter brings a sure and certain hope. And man, oh man, do we need hope today? We're in a new age of anxiety and hopelessness. I mean, we really were already there before the pandemic, historically speaking, and then the pandemic hits, which just made it so much worse. A growing crisis of hope, a new age of anxiousness, even while we live in the most advanced society of all history. We worry. And as Christians, we remind ourselves, what is worry besides placing our hope in something other than God? Worry is saying the tomb is occupied. Worry is saying there's a throne in heaven that's empty. Andy Davis defines hope when he was here. He defined hope this way. A strong confidence in the heart of the Christian that the future will be bright based on the promises of God. It's a really good definition. Hope is a strong confidence in the heart of the believer that the future is bright because of the promises of God. Friends, our future is as bright as God's promises. Our future is as bright as the tomb is empty. Why? Because Jesus was raised from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus guarantees our resurrection. Because he was raised, we will be raised. In fact, the New Testament gives us three primary images when it comes to resurrection. Firstborn first fruits, and beginning. Revelation 1 and Colossians 1 say Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. Romans 8, 29 says Jesus is the firstborn among many brothers. He's the first one to be resurrected. And this is about more than just chronology. Of course, he was the first one in terms of time, but also he opens up a way for his people. He's the firstborn, he's the first fruits. The French bishop Hillary in the fourth century says that Christ presented himself to God the Father as the first fruits of humanity and he opened up for us a way that the human race had not known before. He's the first fruits. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20. All about the resurrection. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, which refers to death because believers don't die, we just sleep. Verse 21, for as by a man, Adam came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as an Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end. Then he delivers the kingdom of God, the Father, after destroying every rule and authority and power. For he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Those involved in any kind of, kind of farming understand this, that first fruits, in the first fruits, the whole harvest is already anticipated. The first fruits were a real part of the harvest that could be enjoyed now. 
It came first. It was a representation of the same quality and character, and it was a promise or a pledge of more of the same kind to come. First fruits were that first part that signified a pledge for the rest of it. It was a promise of full harvest. His is the first fruits, which guarantees ours. He's the firstborn. He's the first fruits. He's the beginning. Colossians 1.18. He's the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent. He's the beginner. He's the pioneer, friends. We ought to have a sure and certain hope because his resurrection guarantees ours. He's won the victory. Therefore, we win the victory. We know the end of the story. Our greatest enemy, death, is dead because of the resurrection of Christ. Death is an enemy. It's the last one. It's already a beaten enemy, though. And so we should be confident. We should be hopeful. We should be optimistic just read, he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. So we ought to be a hopeful people and we ought to be a bold people because of the guarantee of the resurrection. This vision of the certainty of our end is what has inspired and encouraged in the sense of given courage to martyr after martyr and continues to do so today. Felicitas was a Christian, Christian widow in the second century. Very hard time to be a Christian, and she had at least seven sons. She may have had daughters as well, but we know that seven sons were captured along with her. She didn't really do anything wrong. I mean, she was at home with her sons, but I guess she had a vibrant enough faith that she, came, she became known to some pagan priests who hated Christianity and would often find them. At this particular time, the Roman authorities wouldn't necessarily go out actively to persecute Christians, but if they became aware of them, they would stamp it out as quick as they could. And so you had these proselyte pagan priests trying to stamp it out and got a hold of Felicitas and her seven sons and brought her before the Roman government to be executed. Unless she did two things, renounce her Christian faith and offer sacrifices to the pagan gods. She refused. And she says, while I live, I shall defeat you. And if you kill me, I shall defeat you all the more. What inspires such courage in the face of death? The guarantee of resurrection. Roman authorities were obviously caught off guard and so they let her be and they turned to her seven sons instead. Asked the same thing of them. And she requested, can I die last? Her motive was to encourage her sons not to recant, but to finish well. While I live, I shall defeat you and if you kill me, I'll defeat you all the more. Gregor the Great said that she died seven deaths before her own. Seven sons, seven souls she had carried and nurtured. In my death, I shall defeat you all the more. Friends, a little news update. Roman Empire's long gone. Felicitas is alive and well. She knew what we should all know. And the resurrection is a reminder that even the worst forms of suffering at the end of the day are very temporary. And the worst suffering, death, is not the end. 
It's not a period, but a comma. The grave is simply a transfer portal. Again, that's why the Bible says when saints die, they don't die, they sleep. His resurrection guarantees ours a sure and certain hope. Listen to what he says. Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Do you believe him? He's working for our good in the midst of it. We gonna be all right. He lays the stumbling blocks, turns them into stepping stones on our journey to glory. Resurrection is coming. Are we viewing all of our hardships in light of this? Are we living in light of the end? My favorite D.A. Carson quote, I'm not suffering from anything a good resurrection can't fix. (laughs) There's a grave outside of Jerusalem where the body of Jesus was laid and it ain't there no more. It's empty. And because that everything is different, Our hope is as solid as the resurrection body of Jesus. Packer said this way, for the Christian, the best is always yet to be. Easter grants us a sure and certain hope. Easter accomplishes the forgiveness of sins, which is our greatest need. Again, the cross means nothing without the resurrection. The cross is defeat without the resurrection. But we have Easter, the validation and vindication of the cross through the cross and resurrection All our guilt, all our shame removed. Jesus says, it is finished. No guilt in life, no fear in death. Jesus stands in victory and as he does, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. Romans 4, 25, Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification, which is a right standing that we obtain by faith and not by earning it. First Corinthians 15, 17 warns, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins, but friends, Christ has been raised. And so we're freed from our sins. As the old hymn writer put it, Well may the accuser roar of ills that I have done. I know them all and thousands more. Jehovah knoweth none. Fourth, Easter provides indestructible joy. You know, one of the reasons we lack joy is because of our fears and our insecurities and our anxieties. And one of the main reasons is ultimately our fear of death. You think about what you're anxious about, what you're fearful of. There's probably a lot of presenting things, but back of them, at the end of the day, it's death. Hebrews 2 says, since therefore the children, speaking of us, share in flesh and blood, bodies, Jesus, he himself likewise partook of the same things. He took upon a body. Here's why. Here's the reason of Christmas. Why did the son take on a body that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death? That is the devil. And deliver all those 
through, who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Because of his death and victory, Jesus frees us from the fear of death. We suffer differently. This is what allows us to suffer well, even all the way to the end. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. As Peter says in one of the first Christian sermons in Acts chapter two, God raised him up, ending the pains of death. Because of Easter, we can have a joy that cannot be shaken because at the end of the day, our joy is no longer tied and based upon to how things are going. Ultimately, we've got something deeper so that even in the the hardest time and the worst days, we can have a deep joy that is indestructible. Joy is no longer based on current circumstances, but upon the rock that is Christ. Listen to Philippians chapter one, verse 21. For to me, the Apostle Paul says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better. This is what I want for you. This is really my goal. This is my job description as a pastor. This is where you all ought to want to aspire. That if you live, your life is Christ. For to me, to live is Christ. Your life is all about him, centered on him. Everything you're doing is to honor him, whether, whatever it is, eating or drinking, doing everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ with thanksgiving, but also viewing death as gain. How can you view death as gain? Because you love him so much. That's what he says. I, I, I want to go. That word desire, we kind of sanitize a little bit. The words used elsewhere of death. I desire to die and to be with him because that's so much better. But if I'm here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work for the good of the church. Fruitful labor for me. This is where we want to be, where the worst thing that can happen to us for a follower of Jesus, death, is actually the best thing that can happen to us because we get to be with him and it's way better. It's better there. Richard Baxter was a Puritan pastor and he was dying and, and he was asked, you know, how are you doing, brother? And his reply was, almost well. Almost well. Revelation chapter 21, verse one. I saw a new heavens and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. 
a sure and certain hope and indestructible joy. Friends, it's impossible to remain neutral about all this. Jesus hasn't given us that option. The empty tomb demands a decision. In his book, Person of Interest, J. Warner Wallace writes this. Jesus was born in a tiny, irrelevant town in the Roman Empire and raised in another small village. He had to walk from one place to the next, and as an adult, he never traveled more than 200 miles from the town where he was born. He had none of the resources people use today to make an impact, no social media platform, no podcast audience, no clever videos, no website. He didn't even have the resources people used in the first century to make an impact. He never held a political office, never ruled a nation, never led an army, never authored a book. His family was insignificant. The locals suspected he was an illegitimate son. His mother was a poor peasant woman and his father couldn't afford much. Jesus didn't receive an expensive education, never married, never had children, never owned a home of his own and didn't possess much more than the clothes on his back. As an adult, his brother was suspicious of his ministry, a work that ended after just three short years. Public opinion turned against him. Most of his followers abandoned him. One disciple betrayed him and another denied him. He was rejected by the religious, hunted by the powerful, mocked and unjustly persecuted by his enemies. He suffered an unfair trial, was publicly humiliated, brutally beaten, and unduly executed in the most horrific way. Even then, the few followers who remained had to borrow a grave to bury him. Yet, this is the man who changed history, inaugurated the common era, and forever transformed the most important and revered aspects of human culture. How is it possible that a single man, a man like Jesus, could have this impact? The empty tomb demands a decision. If Jesus was raised from the dead, we must listen to and obey everything he said. And what is his fundamental call? Repent and believe the gospel. Repent just means to change your mind. what the word means. It's two words together, the change of mind. It calls you to change your mind about him first and foremost. Change your mind about who you are. Change your mind about the world. Change your mind about all things. Really drop your agenda and take on his agenda and believe, trust in him as Lord and Savior for the forgiveness of sins. We turn from self to Christ and gain forgiveness and life everlasting. I wonder where you are this morning. I wanna close just with some of his words. John chapter three, verse 16 God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. John chapter five, do not marvel at this, Jesus says. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who've done good to the resurrection of life and those who've done evil to the resurrection of judgment. John 8, truly, Jesus says, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. John 11, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. 
The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. And then Jesus closes how I want to close. He just asks, do you believe this? Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that you haven't left us in the dark, but you've revealed yourself to us. You've shown us who we are, made in your image, the crown of creation, yet we've ruined it because of our own sin. And so we learn that we're sinners desperately needing forgiveness. Sinners who have earned the wages of sin, which is death. Lord, I pray for anyone here who's not sure if they know Christ, that you would help them to feel the weight of their own death. Help them to feel how fleeting time is. Help them to feel afresh how short life is. Teach them to number their days that they may gain a heart of wisdom. And God, for those of us whom you've revealed yourself and who know Christ as Lord and Savior, would you help us to live in light of the end? Would we glory in the cross and the finished work of Jesus? Because of the empty tomb, would we have a sure and certain hope and would we base our joy in our life on the rock that never changed, Jesus Christ? Died in our place, raised from the dead, is installed as king at your right hand. We need your help, help us in Christ's name. Amen.